This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as financial advice. All views expressed on this podcast are solely the opinions of the host and or any guests that we might have from time to time. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular investing strategy. Hello, you sexy sat stackers, and welcome to the latest episode of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast. It was a, uh, well, it's been an interesting week. Started out with an interesting weekend. This was, of course, a busy Bitcoin conference weekend. There was BitBlock Boom in Austin, Texas, and Surf and Bitcoin in Biarritz, France. So there was a lot of interesting content associated with uh, the Bitcoin conferences. If you are like me, you didn't get to attend them in person. I mean, even though a lot of people go to some of these conferences, when you look at Bitcoin Miami, for example, with 30,000 people, uh, even though that seems like a lot of people, that still deva- means the vast majority of Bitcoin plebs are not at those conferences. Uh, so most of us are living vicariously through, you know, watching either some of the live feeds or the YouTube videos that come out of the conference. We're listening to the recaps of the conference on the podcasts that come out on Monday morning, etc. One thing that often happens, though, is our favorite podcasters all tend to be at the major conferences. So usually there's... Uh, a lack in original content the week of or the week shortly after a Bitcoin conference. Fortunately, that wasn't the case for Rabbit Hole Recap this year. That was nice. Often Rabbit Hole Recap does their live RHR at the conference and they don't get around to posting that until, you know, later the next week. So often, you know, Matt and Marty don't don't get a podcast done on Thursday, but they did. So that was really cool. Um, but other podcasters had their hands full. One of these days, I'd like to make it out to BitBlockBoom. You know, even though I'm in the United States and it's basically, I don't know, just drive up to Interstate 10 and then all the way over, right? Um, That's a lot further than it seems. That's more than a thousand miles from here. Texas itself is a gigantic state. Just driving across Texas takes an entire day uh, and I'd have to get, you know, I think, I mean, I've done the drive and I, last time I did so, I, you know, split the drive into two days, spent spent the night in New Orleans and then continued the second half the next day. And that was two very full days. So it's not as easy as it might seem, unless I guess you could hop an air, an air, an airliner, take a, you know, flight to Austin, but that's just time that a lot of us don't have. And the other reason I don't go to uh, conferences is because, you know, if I don't want to spend three or $4,000 on a conference when I could buy a 10th of a Bitcoin for that right now. So, um, I'm getting off on a major tangent. You know, the other major thing going on right now is uh, we had Hurricane Idalia hit Florida. Fortunately, it, we didn't really get much, if anything, from Hurricane Idalia. It was so far offshore in the Gulf of Mexico that uh, they didn't even get a lot of wind damage in like Tampa, you know, on, on the Gulf Coast, let alone anything over here on the opposite side of Florida. So uh, we got lucky with the track. And uh, we didn't have any, you know, we had one really, really good storm band blow through uh, yesterday afternoon. It was really cool looking, really dark, really ominous, got some really intense rain for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And that was it. We had, you know, a few windy spells blow through as the uh, as the hurricane moved by on the opposite coast. But really, the only the only thing I have to show for it is one of my potted plants blew over <laughs> one of my large plumerias, and it tends to blow over anytime we get any really strong storms around here. So we dodged a bullet and we did our we're, we're getting our stack on time. We're doing our podcast as scheduled. 
I know I had tweeted out that if the that if the hurricane interfered, that you know we would do the stack and and maybe the podcast would have to be delayed. Uh, because oftentimes, even if we're not where the eye wall hits, for example, the last couple hurricanes that went by, we didn't get a direct hit. Uh, the eye wall scraped by within like 30 miles on uh, what was that Dorian, and we were still without power for a week. So. Um, you know, if there's no cell phone service, no power, no data, no internet, it's kind of hard to do a podcast. Uh, but I digress. That was the first real hurricane of the season to kind of affect the United States. And it did do a number on certain portions of Florida. You know, they're really prone to storm surge on the Gulf Coast because the big bend area of Florida, you know, it's basically almost a 45 degree angle. I mean, it's rounded off, but Florida makes a 45 degree angle or a 90 degree angle. And uh, as a result, the water that the hurricane pushes ahead of it has nowhere to go. And so they get inundated up there, but they're used to it. So, you know, there was a lot of hype on on the Weather Channel and on and the news leading up to this. And sure, they did get inundated with storm surge. But considering it was supposed to be a Category 4 hurricane, uh, they, they, they got off pretty lucky. Um, you know, we're used to hurricanes here in Florida. So I don't want to say this was not a big deal, but it wasn't as big a deal as it could have been. All right, there's a lot of news to talk to, including the breaking news, yes, breaking news yesterday, referenced the uh, Grayscale's lawsuit against the Securities and Exchange Commission. Before we get into all of that real quick, though, a look at the vital statistics. Today is Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Of course, that means it is DCA Wednesday. And at the time of this recording, we are at a block height of 805,504. And the price of Bitcoin is almost $1,000 more than it was last Wednesday. We're currently looking at a U.S. dollar value of $27,280 or 3,666 sats per dollar, which is kind of basically where we had been all summer, right? We had a, we had that, that drop, uh, whether it was caused by SpaceX or Binance or, or whatever you blame it on, where, where Bitcoin dropped down to, to the upper $25,000 range. Uh, but then yesterday on this Grayscale SEC news, it pumped back up pumped back up to basically right where it's been in that, you know, we're still a little under 28,000. Uh, we're significantly under 28,000 at 27,280. But when you zoom out in the grand scheme of things, we're still basically going sideways, which if you've been listening to this podcast or anyone else who subscribes to the 210,000 block theory, as I've always said, we're going to be in an accumulation phase until the next halving, which will be in April of next year. And traditionally, Bitcoin doesn't retake its all-time high until about six months to a year after the halving. So we basically should not be looking at, a, you know, a new all-time high until October or November of 2024. If that, you know, if that happens, of course, there's always not, you know, there's always black swans and there's always white swans or golden swans. And if the Securities and Exchange Commission gives in and just approves all these spot Bitcoin ETFs, maybe that will be, you know, something that says this time is different and we get a big pump. Uh, but, you know, who knows, right? Uh, in general, however, we should not expect to see Bitcoin eclipse its previous all-time high until the fall of 2024 or later. And that's good news because it means we can stack more sats because every time Bitcoin hits a new all-time high, I know a lot of you out there start looking at your pile of Satoshis and think, is this, is this enough? Am I too late? Did I miss out? Did I stack hard enough, fast enough? Uh, because now that it's going to be more expensive to buy my sats, uh, it's going to be harder to grow that stack. So don't live through that regret. Make sure that you're stacking as hard as you 
as, as hard as your future self would want you to be stacking. All right, where was I? Uh, this current block height puts us 34,496 blocks away from that next halving, and that's currently forecast to occur on April 21st of 2024. So that's been bouncing back and forth between April 20th and April 21st. Of course, we won't know when that halving is going to occur until it actually happens because, you know, it's going to happen at block 840,000. And, you know, we know that blocks are supposed to come in on average every 10 minutes, but they don't, right? You know, that's an average. And traditionally, they've been coming in a little faster more often than not because the, the amount of hash power being added to the network has been increasing. It's been going up and to the right. Kind of like the price of Bitcoin, if you zoom out, the the computing power securing the, the Bitcoin network has been growing uh, almost as exponentially as the price, if not more so sometimes. Uh, so you would it would be reasonable to believe that uh, it will happen no later than April 21st. But, you know, anything can happen. For example, uh, when we met last week, we were looking at a huge difficulty increase. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of a, a bit ahead of myself right now, but uh, we're currently looking like the next mining difficulty adjustment is going to be a downward difficulty adjustment instead of an increase. Uh, but before I get too far ahead of myself, let's continue on with, um, with the vital statistics. Bitcoin's current price puts its market capitalization at 531.2 billion. So uh, all about 15 billion higher than last Wednesday, but uh, about 30 billion below the Wednesday before that. Solidly right in the $500 billion range that Bitcoin has been stuck at since, I don't know, at least June, if not earlier. So no big surprise there. I know a lot of people think market capitalization is a worthless metric, but you know, as Bitcoin grows and matures, as it becomes more mainstream, it's definitely a metric that a lot of people find useful. Uh, and it, it's indicative of just how much money is flowing into Bitcoin. Now, I know it doesn't take into account all the Bitcoin that was accumulated when it was less than a dollar per coin, for example, and that if every Bitcoin in existence went to the exchanges, went for you know went went on sale, that obviously that would drop the market cap because it would crash the price. So you know, take it for what it's worth. But um, I find it useful to show that basically that the market capitalization of Bitcoin has remained largely unchanged. Again, if you zoom out. For those of you who value your wealth in shiny yellow rocks, it's going to cost you a little bit more gold to purchase just one Bitcoin than if you'd bought the dip last week. It will currently cost you 14.2 ounces of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. I know there's a lot in common between gold bugs and Bitcoiners. It seems like there's that divide, though. Either gold bugs are also into Bitcoin, they see Bitcoin as digital gold, or they're just dug in and doubled down on gold and just completely anti-Bitcoin like Peter Schiff. Eventually, though, everybody comes around to Bitcoin. When we do achieve hyper-Bitcoinization, uh, you will get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. And if you are a gold bug right now, that is 14.2 ounces of gold for just one Bitcoin. And for those of you who value your wealth in pizza, one Bitcoin will purchase you 1,525 large pepperoni pizzas from Papa John's. That is more than uh, one pizza a day for more than four years. For just one Bitcoin, as opposed to uh, two Papa John's pizzas for our 10,000 Bitcoin, you know, that Laszlo purchased on that first Bitcoin pizza day 13 years ago. And speaking of purchases and on-chain activity, 
Uh, the mempool is a little more clogged than it was last week. We currently are looking at approximately 46 blocks worth of transactions to clear, at least in Clark Moody's mempool. I know there's a little bit of controversy on that as well because uh, other mempools uh, have uh, more space allocated to their mempool and, and, are, and are therefore showing more transactions pending potentially. But we've been keeping it consistent. We've been using Clark Moody's mempool or my mempool on my Umbral node uh, this entire the for the entire history of the podcast and so to keep it consistent we're still using Clark Moody's mempool and he says there's 46 blocks worth of transactions pending in his mempool that is up from the 42 blocks worth of transactions that were pending the last two DCA Wednesdays in a row so that's indicative of a little bit more on-chain activity and along those lines fees to guarantee that your on-chain Bitcoin transaction is included in the next block have gone up as well Clark Moody's fee estimator is saying that if you want to guarantee your transaction is included in the next block, it's going to cost you a fee of 16 sats per V-byte. That is actually agreeing with mempool.space for the first time I can re I can remember. Normally mempool.space estimates are a little bit less expensive, but they're saying that a high priority transaction should also include a fee of 16 sats per V-byte. Uh, and... Um, their lowest recommended fee, even for a no priority transaction, is 14 sats per V-byte. So uh, that is up from last week where they were saying an 8 sat per V-byte transaction would be included, you know, relatively quickly in, the, in one of the next uh, blocks to be mined. That 16 cents per V-byte is still relatively cheap, though. That works out to about 62 cents for a uh, transaction to be mined into the next block in U.S. dollar terms. Still relatively cheaply. Uh, compared to how much it would cost you to send a wire transfer to use Western Union, for example. Uh, that on-chain activity actually is down a little bit from... Well, it's it's not necessarily down. If you recall, last DCA Wednesday, the, the site that provides the 24-hour on-chain transaction activity was down, so it was unavailable. But uh, the week before that, we were looking at an average of 6.44 transactions per second on-chain. Currently, we're looking at an average of 4.75 transactions per second so that is down uh, from the last time we were able to uh, to look at that data anyway. And we got into this a little bit earlier. Uh, we are about 896 blocks away, or exactly 896 blocks away from Bitcoin's next mining difficulty adjustment. As you know, the difficulty to mine the next block of uh, the next Bitcoin block is adjusted every 2016 blocks which is theoretically every two weeks with the goal of keeping blocks coming in at an average of 10 minutes between blocks. Last DCA Wednesday, uh, we had just had a difficulty adjustment relatively recently. And so I, as I stated that that data was pretty unreliable because a lot can happen in two weeks. At the time, it was forecasting a huge increase of, in difficulty of 6.3%. Now that we're 896 blocks away, which is looking like will be next week, next DCA Wednesday, September 6th. It's both sites I'm looking at are forecasting a decrease in the difficulty to mine the next block and decrease of anywhere from minus 4.05% to as much as minus 5.6%. And that is because during this current mining epoch, blocks have been averaging 10 minutes and 36 seconds, which is substantially slower than 10 minutes. Uh, and as you recall, the last two weeks in a row, they were coming in much faster than 10 minutes. In fact, last week they were zooming in at an average time of nine minutes and 24 seconds between blocks. 
Part of that was probably because we didn't have a whole lot of data points to, to create that average. Uh, and I haven't, um, I haven't heard anybody definitively say, you know, why they think the hash rate has decreased, whether it's because we saw that big dip in Bitcoin price. That would certainly make sense that some of the, you know, least less profitable miners would have been shut off when, when Bitcoin dipped all the way to 25,000. Uh, who knows? You know, the mining hash power fluctuates. And these are all just estimates anyway. We can't actually get an exact reading of how much hash power is uh, dedicated to securing the network. You know, those are all estimates based on how fast blocks are coming in, etc. cetera. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it could just be pure random luck you know, when blocks are coming in faster or slower and not necessarily have anything to do with a change in mining hash power. Real quick, I want to thank those of you who are listening on your favorite podcasting 2.0 apps, such as Fountain or Breeze. We do have a boost to read from our uh, longtime supporter, Leggy, who sent us another 5,000 sats and said, uh, and sent the message, well, he said it was a boost and sent the message. I'm having a hard time talking today. I didn't sleep a whole lot. Whenever there's a hurricane coming, I just don't go to bed. I stay up and watch the, the weather reports come in, the forecasts, etc. Because when you live on a barrier island, uh, you need to be informed because if the hurricane had made a hard right turn and come our direction, we would have needed to get off the island potentially. So I just don't sleep. Uh, and I know this seems to be like the last several podcasts in a row. I keep saying I'm having a hard time talking today. I also wrenched my back because I was getting ready for the hurricane and I was moving some things around and I had a couple of pieces of heavy equipment I had to put in storage. And uh, so I'm actually on prescription painkillers right now too, which might make this podcast even more entertaining. Uh, we shall see. I haven't really had time to kick in yet, but if I start getting funky in the next half an hour or so, that is why. There's that podcast out there, High Hash Rate, where they get stoned and talk about Bitcoin and sometimes their podcasts get really bizarre. Um, this might be the prescription painkiller version if I don't hurry up and get to the point. Anyway, Leggy sent the following boost. It may have been easy in the past, but I think achieving the actual block reward when you learn about Bitcoin is impossible for most of people. I'm pretty sure I will never achieve 6.25. I'm simply stacking as much as possible for my kid's future. Leggy is exactly right, and he's referring to when I was talking about uh, how the common theme in podcasts last week, a theme that was popping up over and over again was how much Bitcoin do you need to retire? And on one of the podcasts or multiple podcasts, they had suggested basically that you need to have whatever the minor reward is uh, when you start stacking uh, because as you know, right now 6.25 Bitcoin is the minor reward and it's a lot of money, but it's not necessarily enough to retire on, but two or three halvings from now, if you have 6.25, that should be enough to retire. Uh, so Leggy's referring to that. And I, I tend to agree. I don't think there's any way I'll ever have 6.25 Bitcoin either. Not unless Bitcoin crashes. You know, there were those people forecasting that Bitcoin would drop back down into the teens even if that happened and I borrowed enough money to purchase an entire Bitcoin, that wouldn't boost my stack anywhere near 6.25. So, you know, everybody stacks the amount of Bitcoin that they can, you know, everybody, everybody, everybody stacks and saves and invests a, an amount that is appropriate to their circumstances. At least hopefully you do, right? Um, you can't save more than you earn. So, you know, Michael Saylor buys Bitcoins tens of thousands at a time. And we're stacking just $20 of the Bitcoin at a time here. So somewhere in between that $20 worth of Bitcoin and millions or billions of dollars of the Bitcoin is where you may find yourself. And that's a personal decision you have to make. 
I just thought it was funny that, um, or ironic, not necessarily even ironic, it was suspicious that all the podcasts seemed to be talking about the same thing. And, and one of those themes was how much Bitcoin will you need to retire? Uh, it just reminded me of like, you know, when um, the media gets a narrative, like when they were saying that, um, you know, if you were watching the news report, it didn't matter what city in the world you were in. If you're watching your local news media, they pay, they parroted the same lines almost verbatim. There's some interesting clips on YouTube and Twitter, you know, illustrating that. And this, this kind of piqued my curiosity as well, because it's not uncommon for podcasts to interview the same person because, you know, those people are, are doing the circuit, the podcast circuit, because that's their living or that's their business. They're getting paid to promote something, whether that's a product or just themselves. Uh, and so it's, you know, if, if, if there's a new product out there, like the BTC trading cards or whatever, it's in their best interest to go out and hit every podcast they can. But the narrative of how much Bitcoin do I need to retire all of a sudden popping up everywhere on Twitter, everywhere, you know, on Reddit and, and on a bunch of different podcasts all at the same time just seemed a little weird to me. Uh, and that's what Leggy is referencing was that portion of of the uh, of the podcast last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, as soon as we're done stacking, go go back and listen to it, and uh, maybe maybe you'll agree with me. But I agree with you, Leggy. I do think that achieving the actual block reward is pretty much impossible for the average person. So we're just going to stack as many sats as we can, and hopefully uh, that will be enough that we aren't left out when you know Bitcoin becomes the next you know global reserve currency. Speaking of listeners all over the place, our geographic distribution of listeners has remained exactly the same. The top 10 countries for listenership are still as follows. Number one is the United States. So thank you to everybody listening out there in the United States. Number two remains Argentina. So muchos gracias, amigos. Number three remains Germany. So Dankeschön, mein friends in Deutschland. Number four remains Luxembourg. Again, Dankeschön, mein friends in Luxembourg. Or Morian, for those of you who speak Luxembourgish. Thanks again, Leggy, for pointing out how to say uh, hello in Luxembourgish. Number five remains Canada. So thank you to our friends up north of Canada. North of us, anyway. Number six remains Spain. So muchos gracias, amigos, and España. Number seven remains Venezuela. Again, muchos gracias, amigos. Number eight remains Colombia. Once again, muchos gracias. Number nine remains Sweden. And still nobody has reached out for me from Sweden to let me know uh, the customary greeting that's used in Sweden. And you don't have to send a boost, guys. I'm not begging for sats here. You know, send me a DM on Twitter at, at BTCBulletinPod or send me an email at BitcoinBulletin at ProtonMail.com and let me know. I know you're listening. I can see the stats. Number 10 remains Singapore. Same thing goes for you in Singapore. Nobody's reached out to me to let me know how you greet each other in Singapore or how you say thank you in Singapore. Send me that DM. Send me an email. Or heck, send me a boost, you know. Um, whatever you feel is appropriate. Uh, and still lurking down at number 11 is Mexico. So thank you to everybody, regardless where you're listening from. Uh, it is cool to see that we have an international audience for sure. Uh, it is expected that a large portion of my listenership would be in the United States, since this is an English podcast done from in the United States. It's flattering, however, that it's only half of you. So that is really cool. All right, on to the news. Again, price is almost always what people are talking about the most when it comes to the news. And I'd say Bitcoin popped, the price popped, but we kind of had that inverse BART. The price of Bitcoin had dropped all the way down to you know the $25,000 range, uh, but it pumped yesterday to as high as 28,000, over 28,000, in fact, 
largely on the news of the breaking news of Grayscale winning their lawsuit against the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's since settled down a little bit to where it, you know, currently is at about $27,280. And if you are living under a rock or have not heard, uh, Grayscale was suing the Securities and Exchange Commission because the SEC had blocked their bid to turn their Bitcoin investment trust into an ETF, which basically was almost just kind of a semantics thing. You know, it's already a fund that, you know, is based on physical Bitcoin held in custody. They just wanted to be, an ex instead of a fund, an exchange-traded fund where you could buy and sell your shares on the stock market like a stock. The Securities and Exchange Commission blocked that. They sued and they won. Now, the court victory doesn't mean they get to automatically become an ETF, but um, the the court ruling itself was a pretty big, a pretty big smackdown on the SEC. The judges, there was a three-judge panel, and they did not hold back any punches. They said the ruling was arbitrary and capricious. They said that uh, the SEC, when they approved spot Bitcoin, uh, not spot Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures ETFs, that they gave a lengthy juris justification for why they were approving the futures ETFs, and that their excuse for uh, denying all the spot Bitcoin ETFs was arbitrary and capricious because it wasn't held to the same standard, that the standard that they were using to block these ETFs, the uh, the ability to manipulate the market, et cetera, that you know, futures lead spot price and that there's vastly more grounds, room for price manipulation in futures than there is in spot markets. And therefore uh, it was just an illegal unlawful ruling. Uh, basically, what they did though is they sent it back to the SEC, said uh, re-review this and come up with a you know come up with a new ruling, and that does not mean that they're guaranteed to win. It just means that uh, the SEC has to come up with a new excuse to block uh, the ETF if they want to do so. I also heard it discussed that um, you know most likely what the well that that that, that most likely that's what they were going to do, but there's also the possibility that uh, on the flip side. They may, they may delay uh, their decision, their review on the Grayscale ETF application to give them time to shotgun approve all the other pending uh, ETFs. Obviously, if they do approve the Grayscale ETF, it would be very hard to imagine that they could deny the other, uh, at least the BlackRock and the Vanguard ETFs because uh, they were fairly well researched uh, ETF proposals from major, major players who, who know what they're talking about. They certainly have enough attorneys on their staff to make sure they're complying with the law. Anyway, Forbes ran the headline, Grayscale lands massive court victory over SEC and battle for Bitcoin, for battle for spot Bitcoin ETF. Reuters ran the headline, U.S. court says SEC wrong to deny Grayscale spot Bitcoin ETF proposal. And CNBC focused on the price action, saying Bitcoin rallies more than 7% as court sides with Grayscale over the SEC in the crypto ETF case. A lot of people were basically alluding to or um, construing this ruling into uh, the the court clearing the, clearing the path or basically uh, guaranteeing that these ETFs would be approved. That is not the case. Corey Clipston, for example, tweeted a little bit of clarification shortly after the ruling when he said the correct take on the grayscale ruling is below lots of i'm going to bleep this out because they're getting a little more strict on what you can say on these podcasts and still maintain your uh your not explicit rating but lots of bs headlines 
out there already. Grayscale is now in the queue with dozen uh, with a dozen others rather than being totally denied. And he's requoting, uh, reposting what Dylan LeClaire had posted where it says, Grayscale wins lawsuit against SEC. DC Circuit Court of Appeals is vacating SEC's denial of GPT- GBT's convert- GBTC's conversion into an ETF. Does not GBTC is automatically converting into an ETF, however. I guess it does not mean GBTC is automatically converting into ETF. Then he posts the opinion filed by Circuit Judge Rao, R-A-O. It says, uh, well, it's he highlights or red boxes. We agree the denial of Grayscale's proposal was arbitrary and capricious because the commission failed to explain its different treatment of similar products. We therefore grant Grayscale's petition and vacate the order. So again, all they're doing is sending it back to the Securities and Exchange Commission, which means the the order where they denied the petition um, has been nullified and, and it's back in their court. The same thing happens with appeals courts all the time in other rulings where, you know, let's say someone gets convicted of, of, of a crime and they appeal it and uh, it goes to the, the Supreme Court or, or a, what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they win the appeal, but it doesn't mean they're not necessarily not guilty. They they send it back to the court and say, make a new ruling, uh, you know, try this again, not set them free necessarily. Speaking of the legal system, uh, Coindesk's main headline, banner headline right now anyway, is Sam Bankman-Fried lawyers, quote, need him out of jail ahead of the trial, they tell the judge. The former FTO, FTX CEO turned criminal defendants team said they have no faith in the prosecutor's claimed efforts to address his jailhouse woes. Basically, his jailhouse woes are he's restricted to using his internet and he's not being fed vegan food. Oh, and he's not being given enough Adderall. Boo-hoo. You know, the reason Sam Bankman-Fried is in jail is because he was let out of bail, living a cushy life at his parents' mansion in California, and he could not resist tampering with the case. You know, he leaked his ex-girlfriend's diary to the media. She, of course, is the star witness against him. That is jury tampering as plain as day. If you're out on bail and you start trying to intimidate witnesses, not jury tampering, sorry, witness tampering. If you're out on bail and you start trying to intimidate the witnesses who are supposed to testify against you, you're going to have your bail revoked 99.99% of the time. The only time you're not is if the judge is just insane, not following the rules or corrupt. Who knows why a judge would not? Because the judge's overriding goal here is to guarantee that justice prevails and that there's a fair and impartial trial. And you can't have a fair and impartial trial with witnesses being intimidated. And I don't know about you, and I'm not a, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a girl. I never have been. Uh, but... I know enough women in my life that I know they take their diaries pretty seriously and they don't want them to be published in the newspaper uh, and uh, psychologically having their ex-boyfriend, you know, that's not domestic violence per se, but it's definitely, definitely a psychological attack on the average woman to have their, their, their most private thoughts leaked, leaked to the media. Uh, So Sam, you deserve to be in jail. It breaks my heart. You can't have vegan food or Adderall. You know, boo-hoo, maybe you shouldn't have been uh, breaking your bail, your, the terms of your bail, and trying to uh, try and t- to intimidate Caroline, who is no angel either. Mind you, she pled guilty, uh, you know, and there was a plea, a plea bargain where basically she turned state's witness against Sam Bankman-Fried for a lenient sentence. But, you know, obviously she, she was a big part of this FTX scam as well on the Alameda side. Uh, but I digress. Sam, you deserve to rot in jail. 
On the positive news, uh, El Salvador has entered an agreement with Google where they, uh, according to the Google Cloud anyway, uh, apparently Google Cloud is a, is, a, is a subsidiary company, or at least enough so that they release their own press releases saying, Google Cloud and the government of El Salvador announced today a multi-year agreement to support the country in its journey to become a technological hub in Central America. U.S. News and World Report ran the headline, Google Cloud to open office in, in El Salvador and seven-year partnership. The article goes on to say Google Cloud and other at Google Cloud and the government of El Salvador announced a multi-year agreement on Tuesday, just yesterday, that will establish an office and deliver Google distributed cloud services in the Central American country. Google Cloud said in a statement, which we just read, the seven-year strategic partnership pending legislative approval will focus on the areas of digital government, healthcare, and education. This is the sort of thing you would have expected based on, if you recall back in March, Naya Bekele proposed a law to basically exempt tech companies from taxes. I do believe that that law would definitely include Google Cloud, so it's a smart move for them to move there. In addition to helping El Salvador, it's going to help Google uh, at least avoid some taxes on their you know, the overseas income. Back on March 23rd, Reuters ran the headline, El Salvador President Ready's Bill to Eliminate Taxes on Tech. The article says El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, said on Thursday he will send the country's, to the country's Congress next week a bill to eliminate all taxes on technology innovations, as well as computing and communications hardware manufacturing. Quote, next week, I'll be sending a bill to Congress to eliminate all taxes, income, property, capital gains, and import tariffs on technology innovations such as software programming, coding, apps, and AI development, he said on Twitter. The tax cut would also encompass computing and communications hardware manufacturing, Bukele added. So, in addition to making Bitcoin legal tender, Nayib Bukele's been doing some really smart things trying to bring tech uh, to El Salvador. Of course, Bitcoiners tend to be tech enthusiasts, tech savvy. Bitcoin is a technology in, in addition to a language and a money. Uh, so that makes sense. That law, of course, was later passed. It became law in April. Shortly thereafter, you recall Strike was one of the first companies to take advantage of this when they announced in May that they were moving their global headquarters to El Salvador. So it makes sense to see other tech companies. I mean, it makes sense that instead of being in a, in a place like the United States, and in, especially in like, say, California, where you're taxed by both the country and the state uh, on billions of dollars, that you would want to at least dip your toes in the water and give a company a country a try where you're going to be able to make your profits tax-free. Speaking of uh, money, we learned just the other day that in addition to their Bitcoin ETF filings, BlackRock is a major player in the commercial Bitcoin mining industry. There are multiple headlines out there. Uh, for example, one on Finbold saying BlackRock is a major shareholder in four of the five largest Bitcoin miners. The article goes on to say that BlackRock has purchased 10,749,369 shares in Riot, which works out to 6.14% ownership of the company. They purchased more than 10 million, almost 11 million shares of Marathon, which gives them 6.44% ownership value in Marathon. Uh, they have uh, ownership stakes in TerraWolf and, uh, and I'm spacing on the other mining company as well, but there are lesser ownership stakes. For example, TerraWolf, they only own 2.28%. But this tells you that BlackRock is confident in the mining industry. You know, there's that FUD out there, especially around the halving, where people talk about the minor death spiral. 
where miners are going to no longer be profitable when the miner reward gets cut in half. Well, the smart money, the big money, at least on Wall Street, is is apparently disagreeing with that FUD because they wouldn't be dumping hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, uh, $411.54 million into Bitcoin mining companies uh, if they thought that they were uh, a risk, if they thought that there was any chance that these mining companies were going to go out of business in April, I seriously doubt BlackRock would have dumped $411 million into uh, large ownership stakes. You know, 6%, that's less than 10%, which is kind of a magic number because in a lot of industries, if you own 10% or more of a publicly traded company, that subjects you to additional regulations and disclosures. So by staying under 10% ownership, uh, you avoid a lot of that. But 6.4% is a lot. You know, not many people own $199 million of the Riot stock or $190 million of the Marathon stock. So they're definitely by no means small plays. Uh, and that's a big vote of confidence from institutional money in, in Bitcoin. It also shows that BlackRock is very interested in all things Bitcoin, not just their ETF, which a lot of people could argue was, yeah, they're not really Bitcoiners, but it's a product. They can sell it to people. They can make a buck, right? Kind of like the used car salesman thing. They might, they don't think that car they're trying to sell you is the best car ever made. They're trying to make money. Uh, so they're buying clunkers and selling them at a markup. And people are arguing that, you know, that's all BlackRock was doing by trying to get an ETF, just trying to get their slice of the pie while the Bitcoin tulip bubble or whatever continues to inflate. This shows that's not the case. Because if they thought Bitcoin was a bubble, if they thought Bitcoin was a scam and that was something that was going to go away, not something that's here to stay, they wouldn't be investing in the top four commercial miners. Uh, so so that's pretty that's pretty big news, uh, in my humble opinion. I think that's bigger news than more significant news, more signal less noise than the whole ETF speculation thing. Now, the ETFs being approved would drive a lot of normie money into Bitcoin. But this is fundamental news. This is this speaks to the strength, the resilience, the staying power, the potential um, that there's big money out there that thinks that Bitcoin is the future, uh, enough so that they're willing to dump $411 million into it, in addition you know, to pursuing their exchange-traded funds. Speaking of FUD and insanity, the, uh, oh my God, this time is different. FUD is out there as well. Um, this is, has to do with the, with, the, with the AI hype, the AI hoopla, which seems to have taken place of, uh, remember when, when there was the, um, it wasn't the Bitcoin bubble, but it was the blockchain bubble when companies were just adding blockchain to their name, like Long Island iced tea, you know, like they make drinks, beverages, change their name to Long Island blockchain and their stock price went through the roof, uh, you know, and, and everybody was doing that. It was all blockchain all the time. People were just saying the word blockchain. Companies were, uh, they're all coming out with blockchain solutions and their, and their valuations went through the roof before that bubble kind of popped. Uh, the current thing is the, currently that's happening with AI right now. Every company is wanting to showcase how they're involved in AI. And maybe AI is going to be the future, right? Maybe it is going to take away jobs, but not just every company that sticks AI or says we are AI focused or AI centric is going to be the winner of that of that race. So um, anyway, according to the media, that's the case, however, because, for example, Yahoo Finance read the headline, why the AI spending boom will not won't be like the 1990s tech bubble. NVIDIA stock is roaring like many did during the 1990s bubble. But this time around, it's happening in a more mature demand environment. 
Maybe so the case for a, the, a company that actually manufactures the hardware that's going to be used in AI, or at least the best that we know, because again, nobody has a crystal ball. NVIDIA may not even be around in 10 years. You know, the technology that for quantum computing or 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 somebody might come along and invent a, a manufacturing process that that scoops NVIDIA that makes chips, you know, chips cheaper, more powerful and faster. Who knows? But the overall arching point is uh, every company out there is adding AI to their their mission statement, to their names, etc. cetera. Uh, and this just reminds me a lot of the of the dot com bubbles. So uh, the head the, the whole oh my god, this time is different. Uh, headline just reminds me of the definition of insanity that, you know, doing the same thing and respecting different results. It also reminds me, do you remember the comedian Jeff Foxworthy? He was part of the blue collar comedy tour, you know, the, the, um, the, if you, you know, you might be a redneck routine. Uh, if you don't know, he had this one routine where he was talking about playing on the playground and horribly maiming himself and his mom walking up to him and saying, Oh my God, he really is that stupid. That's what I think about when I see this headline. Oh my God, they really are that stupid. Of course, this time is different. You know, you can just put AI in your name or your mission statement and triple the value of your company. And there's nothing unusual or weird about that, right? Of course, that won't pop. All right. So I've got some other news in my notes here about the stock market. And um, there was a lot going on in the markets. They were up and they were down. A lot of that was revolving around uh, around Jerome Powell's speech that he gave in Wyoming. You know, the the uh, they have the retreat in Jackson Wyoming. The city is Jackson. Everybody calls it Jackson Hole. I guess Jackson Hole is the area. That's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I don't know. Um, there's no town of Jackson Hole. The town is Jackson. But they have their, their retreat in Jackson Hole. And he gave his big speech on Friday where he basically said nothing. You know, that they weren't, they, he didn't say they were going to raise interest rates. So they weren't going to raise interest rates. He basically just did his, his, uh, his politician speak. Uh, and so, Markets, including Bitcoin, responded to that. And I guess that's that's old news right now. We don't even need to talk about it because uh, that was eclipsed immediately by the uh, SEC ruling on the Bitcoin ETFs. The little blips that uh, Jerome Powell's speech made uh, are completely moot now. Things change fast in the world of Bitcoin. What might seem like it was the most, you know, land, uh, the most uh, landmark breaking news uh, can rapidly be eclipsed by by something just days or seconds later. All right, so I have a whole bunch of notes that are gloom and doom about the economy here. Uh, and a lot of this is related to the BS narrative that the government is saying this is the best economy in 40 years. We've only got like 5% inflation, which you've been to the grocery store, you know, is BS because the price of eggs quadrupling, this price of steak tripling, you know, the price of gas doubling, the price of everything being more expensive is not 5%. If you went to spend $100 on groceries last year, if we had 5% inflation, that, that basket of groceries would cost you $105 this year, not a, not 250, pardon me, not 250. Got the hiccups all of a sudden. Uh, but out there looming in the shadows, and this could be what tanks the economy, this could be what really tips us into a recession they can't deny, is consumer credit card debt. You know, it was at least six months ago I mentioned that there was a trend that people were financing their groceries. Groceries were getting so expensive, they were using, you know, buy now, pay later services, like you would buy a sofa or refrigerator and pay in installments. They were doing that to buy their food. And there have been a lot of warning signs 
about consumers beginning to default on their credit card payments. First, they loaded their credit cards up, and now they're you know they're they're increasingly not making their payments. Yesterday, the headline was Best Buy sounds the alarm on credit card payments. The day before that, or last week, it was Macy's that said that second quarter credit card sales had tanked and that they were blaming this on the culprit. It says, quote, bloated balances on Macy's Citibank-powered credit cards have been met with a rising interest rate environment and turned cash-strapped consumers. Enduring an almost 32% annual percentage rate interest rate, interest rate on, Macy, on the Macy's card have not been able to pay off their bills, and Macy's has had to write off an increasing amount of credit card debt that uh, customers have taken out on their on their Macy's cards. So basically what this gets to, what this gets at is the the metric that they're using to say that the economy is booming is unemployment, you know, employment, jobs openings, and consumer spending. And when you are measuring consumer spending in an inflationary environment, well, obviously, initially, consumer spending is going to go through the roof because just because your grocery bill's doubling doesn't mean you're not going to eat, Right. So people are putting their groceries, people are putting their clothing on credit cards, and these they're having to spend more because things have gotten more expensive. So of course, consumer spending is going through the roof, but that can't last for long. And we're going to see that credit card bubble pop before too long is basically what, uh, what those headlines are saying. As far as the job openings is concerned, um, look at the population growth of the United States. Heck, just look at the number of people that illegally enter the country through the southern border. It's hundreds of thousands of people a month. So when they say the country added 110,000 jobs last month, but we had 200,000 immigrants come into the country, that's actually fewer new jobs than the population is expanding, which means the percentage of jobs per citizen or per person living in the United States is actually decreasing. The number of jobs are going down when it comes to you uh, being able to find a job. And of course, a lot of these jobs that have been created are either government jobs or they're, uh, they're, they're very low pay jobs like Walmart greeters. There was an article I read on a few, a few episodes back where they mentioned that a significant portion of the jobs that were created were senior citizens, 80 year olds having to take jobs at Walmart uh, or their local grocery store as a grocery bagger to help make ends meet because they couldn't afford to buy groceries anymore. Or people that got laid off from PayPal or Google or Microsoft or Facebook that were making $180,000 a year, they got laid off from that one job, but now they have two $20,000 you know, a year jobs working at you know McDonald's and Burger King. Uh, and that counts as doubling the number of jobs in the country, doubling the, doubling the amount of employment because you went from one job to two. But you know the people aren't earning anywhere near as much. They're certainly not thriving. Um, I digress. I have been rambling long enough and I want to keep this episode positive. The biggest positive is we did not get obliterated by a hurricane, so yay. But let's move on to why we're here, and that's because today is DCA Wednesday. And if you don't know what DCA is, if this is the first time you're listening to us, DCA is short for dollar cost averaging. And dollar cost averaging is an investment strategy where you invest your money in equal portions at regular intervals, regardless of price. For example, this is going to be our 110th stack. We've been stacking more than two years now. We started stacking every Wednesday, which is our regular interval, all the way back on July 28th, 2021. So far, we've stacked 109 times, converting 2,180 stinking fiat dollars, including $48.60 in fees, into a stack of 7,551,308 sats at an average purchase price of $28,869.17. So we are currently running a little bit of a loss right now, which I heard on, I think it was Cafe Bitcoin on Monday, 
Um, one of them mentioned that, you know, the thing where if you started DCAing at basically any point in history that, or at least um, since the last cycle, that you'd be in profit. And they had some stipulations, like I think they were DCAing daily, not weekly or whatever, but uh, that that piqued my curiosity because we're certainly not running up at a profit, but we're not doing too shabby considering the price of Bitcoin, you know, is is uh, is significantly below the previous all-time high, you know, less than half of the previous all-time high. And when Bitcoin takes back the all-time high or sets a new one, whether it's 100000 or 200000 or a million, $28,000 average purchase price is not going to be that shabby. Anyway, today we're going to add to that. We're going to stack another $20 and doing so using the Cash App as always. Uh, and I'm going to cut straight to the chase. I'm going to open the Cash App. I've already got $20 in there because I had money on there. I don't normally, I say I don't normally keep money on my Cash App, but the last several episodes I've, I've had money on my Cash App. So not a lot though. I've got like $60 on the Cash App. Tap Bitcoin, tap buy, enter $20, tap confirm, and boom, just like that, we've added another 71,593 sats, not quite as many as we added last week when we purchased, or last week we purchased at 26000 the over $1,000 cheaper, we got 75,000 sats for our purchase, but 71,593 sats is not too shabby for just 20 US dollars. That brings our stack total now to 7.6 million sats, 7,622,901 sats, and it knocks that average cost basis down just a little bit. Our average purchase price is now $28,860.40, so it lowered our average purchase price by $8.77. That is nice to see. That's the second week in a row we've knocked that average cost price down a tiny bit. It had been trending up when Bitcoin was you know, in the twenty-eight dollars to $30,000 range. All that really matters is that uh, we, we continue to grow that stack. For example, if Bitcoin does go to the moon one day, if Bitcoin hits that $1 million per coin rate, you know, how Finney forecasts that Bitcoin will, will hit $10 million a coin one day. But even if it's only a tenth of that, even if it's only $1 million of Bitcoin, that stack would be worth $76,229.01. And that is not too shabby uh, for, you know, an investment of just a little over $2,000. Even if Bitcoin, you know, say that hits $100,000 next fall or the fall of 2024, uh, that $2,180 would have been turned into $7,622.90 for the Bitcoin. None of that, of course, should matter because you should be living on a Bitcoin standard. One day, I firmly believe you will be living on a Bitcoin standard, so you should be looking at the size of your stack in sats, not the value of your stack in fiat, uh, but I digress. Real quick before we finish up, I would want to reach out and ask you to follow us on Twitter. On Twitter, we are at BTC Bulletin Pod. If you're from, you know, Singapore or uh, any country that, that we haven't given a shout out to, it would be great to hear from you. Let me know how you say hello or thank you in the language that you speak in the country you're listening from. Uh, and you can do that by DMing me on Twitter at BTC Bulletin Pod. Of course, following us on Twitter, increasing our Twitter subscriber follower count helps more people find out about this podcast because the algorithms serve you your Twitter feed based on, you know, things like how many people are subscribed to the channel. Uh, if you're subscribed to the channel, 
and a lot of and and it it bumps high enough up in the algorithm that it starts promoting this content to other people you're following or other people you've interacted with. You might help orange pill somebody that you previously hadn't, you know, helped orange pill. So that would be really cool. Uh, more importantly, though, I just want to hear. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you like, what you like about the podcast, what you don't like about the podcast, where you're listening from. If you're not in one of the top 10 countries. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not on Twitter, we are on Noster as well. Our Noster public key is in the show notes. Um, if you are on Noster, I'm not going to read it out, but you can scroll down to the show notes and, and follow us on Noster. Uh, if you're a Noster user, and if you don't use Noster or Twitter, you can send me an email. Again, my email is Bitcoin Bulletin at protonmail.com. Thanks again to all of you listening on your podcasting 2.0 apps, especially you, Leggy, for that shout out, for that boost. Um, there are a number of ways you can help support the podcast besides sending us a boost. I mentioned that we bought this Bitcoin using the Cash App. Cash App's not a, uh, not a sponsor of the show, but there is a referral code in the show notes. And if you want to use Cash App and you're not already a user, if you sign up for Cash App using that referral code, uh, you'll get some money free for doing that, and the podcast will as well. So you'll actually be getting paid to help support the podcast. Uh, there's also referral codes in the show notes for uh, the strike, for the fold card, uh, and other ways to help support the podcast, including directly through Spotify. Uh, and we have a base 32 email ad or Bitcoin address if you want to contribute Bitcoin on chain to help support the podcast. Most importantly, though, don't forget to join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday while we grow that stack of Satoshis together on our DCA Wednesday episodes. But until that time, keep on stacking those sats, you sexy sat stackers. <laughs>